Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Catherine Morgan Schaffler talking about perfectionism and how that plays out in parents and teenagers. Catherine is a therapist, a writer, a speaker, a former on-site therapist at Google, and she is the author of the book, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. We are speaking with Catherine today about the idea of balance. We'll talk about what perfectionism actually is, and there's a difference between adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism. We'll talk about two simple questions you can always ask yourself to determine whether you're striving in a maladaptive way or an adaptive way. We'll also talk about suicide and the single most important question parents can ask that might save your child's life and how increased levels of visibility in their school, in their community, in their family can actually cause teenagers to put more pressure on themselves and feel more stress. We'll see why we often choose self-punishment instead of self-compassion and how we can teach our teenagers to be more compassionate towards themselves. We'll look at the importance of celebrating the process rather than just the milestones. And we'll see how we can give ourselves permission to feel more joy and pleasure in our lives. All that and more is coming up on the show today. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I just finished reading your book, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. It's jam-packed with information and you have a framework for how there's different types. It sounds like something that you've been really thinking about for quite a long time. Yeah, I noticed a lot of patterns in my work. I'm a psychotherapist and in looking to understand what these patterns are and find the names and language to anchor myself and my clients and I couldn't find it. And so I decided after doing a really deep dive in perfectionism research to begin to put language to those patterns myself. And um, really bring up some super interesting points in the book, just about even the concept of perfectionism and how sort of it's really got me thinking just about why, how we use this word and what it really means and how kind of gendered it is or sort of applied differently to men. It is a highly gendered word. And that's something I didn't even realize until I got into the thick of the book. I mostly work with women and what I was noticing was a lot of women were coming into my practice. These were really high achieving women who were very ambitious and they were presenting with this quote unquote problem of, you know, something's wrong with me because I can't shut this part of myself off when I'm supposed to, this part of myself being 
you know, your ambition, your striving, your sort of drive to progress in a way. And I can't achieve, again, quote unquote, balance. And so I really heard that so many times. And it's one thing to hear a couple of echoes in a day from people that are sort of in the similar position. But it's another thing entirely for years to hear so many people in different clinical contexts echoing the same sentiment. And those were women who felt like, again, something was wrong with them and they weren't getting it right. And other people understood something that they didn't understand. And could I help them understand how to be more balanced? What does that even mean, balance? Well, that's what I asked. And when we got to the definition of what that means, what we uncovered is that we have stripped down the definition of what it means to be balanced, which in its original context is about energetic equilibrium, right? And do I feel like myself? And do I feel like I am not just trying to be one part of me, but I'm an integrated whole? And what we have stripped that definition down to is being good at being busy. So when you say, oh, she's really balanced, what you mean is not she's found her sweet spot of energetic equilibrium. What you mean is you can give her a ton of tasks and she will drop the ball. She's juggling so much stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and she's picking up the kids on time and making dinner and getting the promotions. She's so balanced. She's really found balance. And that's not what balance is. Balance has nothing to do with busyness. And almost it seems to have a connotation of like really uh, performing well in like multiple areas of life or something like, wow, really having a good social life and family life and work life all like firing on all cylinders at the same time or something like, yeah, oh, that's balance. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a good point. And something I talked about in the book, which is our sense that we need to be performing well in all those arenas simultaneously. And that's what success is. Thank you for saying that because some seasons are for incubating personally and figuring out like, what do I even want? You know, like, what do I really like about myself and my friends and my family life? And what do I want to change? And that takes time and introspection. And other seasons are for like, this is the season that I am going to, you know, run a 5k or some other kind of more outside of yourself goal. And other seasons are for a lot of stuff all at once. And sometimes you just need to have seasons of recovery, you know, and so life is not static, it's always changing and fluid. And so you can't have this banner of success and have it mean the same thing all the time, because that doesn't take into account the fact that you're a human being and you are constantly changing. The stuff around you is changing and you need to adjust for that. It really strikes me too that if that's like what our definition is or if we're striving towards this ideal of balance as this state where we've got all these kind of like plates spinning at the same time in all these different areas of our life and like they're all kind of nicely kind of going together and we're, you know, getting to the gym all the time and doing all these things, then 
we're constantly going to be feeling out of balance because like, that's like that's this like illusory thing that you might achieve for small periods now and then but life is always happening and kind of flowing in one direction or another and it's going to like leave you constantly feeling like not in equilibrium or kind of like you're searching or needing something more exactly i think a good general rule is if you're feeling out of balance do less not more One thing that you do in the book, which I love, is you're kind of actually reframing perfectionism from sort of this thing. You talk about all these words that we use in terms of like, I'm a recovering perfectionist or, you know, I need to kind of cure my perfectionism and all these things that really sound really kind of clinical or like this sort of model where perfectionism is this disease that we need to get rid of. But you talk about a lot of research in the book on adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism. So what's the difference between those? So perfectionism is, in my view, this innate natural human impulse that all human beings feel, right? We have this incredible cognitive capacity. Our brains can see reality in front of us, and we can also see an ideal in our minds. So we can imagine new, improved, or different versions of things in both directions. So we can see things in a worse way and in a better way. And perfectionists are people who more often than not, right? So we're talking about in a patterned way, see that gap between reality and the ideal, and they feel something actively inside of themselves. It's a compulsion to try to bridge the gap right? And healthy perfectionists are people who understand that the ideal isn't meant to be achieved. The ideal is meant to inspire. And unhealthy perfectionists conflate achievement and inspiration or aspirational lives. And generally, there's two questions that you can ask yourself or people you care about to kind of keep your perfectionism in check and sort of take your emotional temperature. And that is how are you striving and why are you striving? So if the how is I'm striving towards this goal, but I'm burning myself out or I'm disregarding my need for good quality friendships right now because I've got my eyes on the prize and the prize is work and that's what I'm going to do. And then after that's done, then I'll worry about connection and friendship and family and all that stuff. So if you're striving in a way that's causing you to suffer or people around you to suffer, that's not healthy. Conversely, if you're striving in a way that gives you energy, that makes you feel curious, that lights you up, that feels good, that makes you want to share what you're learning and discovering with other people, that's healthy. And then why are you striving? Are you striving because you think getting the thing that you are trying to get is going to give you a feeling that you don't think you would get otherwise. So a lot of people don't feel worthy of a sense of peace or permission to relax or a loving relationship or a feeling of authority unless they're making a lot of money or looking a certain way or pleasing people around them. And so if the why is to certify your worthiness, to somebody else or to prove to yourself that you're worthy, that's probably an unhealthy, maladaptive version of perfectionism. 
One thing I also really like in that same vein is how you kind of break down what even is perfect. And you talk about the word perfect, which is from the Latin for complete and do. So why is that important to know? Or what does that tell us about what perfect even is? I think that going back to the etymology of perfection helps expand our view of what perfectionists are really after, which is not flawlessness. And that was like the whoa moment that I had in my work and research and writing this book was, I thought perfectionists this whole time were just trying to make everything flawless around them. And that's not the case at all. Perfectionists are trying to create alignment with their inner and outer worlds. And when you're in a healthy space, you're aligned with your own sense of wholeness. So the word perfection comes from the Latin perficere, per, complete, and facere, do. So we're talking about something that's completely done. And we use the word perfection to describe completeness all the time. Like if you say someone's a perfect stranger, for example, you're not saying they're a flawless stranger. You're saying they're a total stranger to me. I have no idea who they are. And so what I noticed in listening is that when people described perfect moments to me, they were never describing superficial material perfection. They were describing something internal And oftentimes, they were describing this internal sense of connection to their whole, their wholeness and their worthiness amidst like chaos and a lot of imperfection, like, oh, the date should have gone so bad. It was raining and then the restaurant was closed and then this happened and then that happened, but it was perfect. And what they're saying is like, it felt complete. I wouldn't have added any other thing to it to make it better because you, you can't add to something that's already whole. And so I offer that identity for people of you already are perfect. You know, everyone tells people and women in particular, you are enough. And I'm like, that's kind of a shitty saying to people, right? Of like, what do you mean you're enough? I guess you're good enough. Yeah. You're fine. Like, I don't look at my five-year-old daughter and say, like, you're enough. I mean, I get get where the core of the message is coming from, but we look at our children, we look at nature, we look at art, we look at good music, we look at the people we're in love with, we look at everything around us and say, oh, you're perfect. Your laugh is perfect. This song is perfect. The way that you gave that talk was perfect. Wouldn't change a thing, you know. But we have such a hard time extending that sense of acceptance to ourselves. And what would it look like to say, you're not flawless, none of us are, and that doesn't matter. But you are a whole human being already. You don't have to do anything to earn your wholeness. You don't become more whole when you learn to walk or talk or make people laugh or look a certain way. You're whole already. And that means that you deserve as a human being as a birthright, access to all the joy, love, dignity, connection, and freedom that if you could imagine the most perfect, quote unquote, idealized version of you that's accomplishing all this stuff and doing all the things that you imagine doing in your head, the you that's showing up right now and that you deserve the same amount of joy, freedom, dignity, love, and connection. That's what it means to understand your self-worth. Why were you pointing to yourself? 
Yeah, turning it inward. I think it's easy to see that perfection in others or we look at the people around us. It's like, yeah, well, oh yeah, I wouldn't change anything about you. But then we look at ourselves and we see all these things we want to change or our own lives. And it's like, well, yeah, I need, you know, if I only had this or that. Are you talking in the book about how sometimes we look at other people and see how they're maybe more successful than us or better at certain things than us or they're farther in their career they're doing you know more attractive they're more healthy or whatever and we then kind of compare ourselves to that and say well okay well obviously yeah that person's worthy of having you know what whatever it is in their life but the implication of that you really did your homework here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah i read the whole books before these things so but i just love that it's really powerful i think yeah, well, you're what you're hitting on. And again, thank you so much for bringing it up is that we don't register our sense of worth or lack of worth in a literal way in our minds. We're not like, I don't believe. So what I'm going to do is work 12 hours, even though I'm really tired, and I should rest. Nobody actually talks like that to themselves in their heads. What they say is, you know, the way this shows up in everyday life is like, Oh, well, of course, Andy has a podcast. I mean, he's so smart and he can connect with people really easily. And so it makes sense that he would do that. And the subtext of that is he is smarter than me or he is more connected than me. And then the subtext under that is he is worthy of more, you know, attention, love, accolades, whatever, than I am, because I'm not that thing. So we're constantly judging. And when, you know, I talk about in the book, when we think of being judgy, we think of being haughty and superior. More times, we're making downward judgments. So we're saying, all these people are better than me. They're more important than I am. And that is as judgmental as saying, did you know that I am more important than you? Who are you to come to me and ask me the question, I'm more important and we are very comfortable saying it's bad to be judgmental in that haughty superiority sense, but we're very comfortable being judgmental when we diminish ourselves and exalt others. Well, because that feels humble. That's good. <laughs> you're just recognizing the awesomeness of other people, but kind of then in so doing, you're also you're overlooking the awesomeness in yourself or just your innate worthiness. Yeah, and humility doesn't require you to diminish yourself at all. It just requires you to appreciate the bigger picture and that the fact that everyone has something to contribute and everyone has a talent for something and that we all need a lot of help if we want those talents and gifts to surface. You talk about suicide in the book, and I wonder why you went into that and how you think that relates to perfectionism. Well, I don't think we talk about suicide nearly enough. We are in the red. We are in a crisis. It is a public health crisis, and suicide rates have climbed. They continue to climb. They are particularly spiking among teen populations. People don't think children commit suicide. And that's not true. And suicide is the second leading cause of death in the United States for kids age 10 to I believe the stat from the CDC is to 35. But 
the point is, if we just talk more about what leads someone to thinking that ending their life is a solution to their problems, then we could take care of each other so much better. And particularly with teens, you know, our minds, their minds rather, are still growing. Our social connections feel so weighted and they are. You know, something that bothers me when people talk about teenagers is, oh, well, they're so dramatic and they're so, they're just overreacting and, and they'll see that this isn't that important in five years. Teenagers don't think it is that important to them, right? They're not many adults. They're not supposed to have the same ability to emotionally regulate that you do as an adult, right? And so we're trying to graft our reactions as an adult onto teens and saying, oh, well, if I was slamming doors and doing all this stuff, well, that would be disrespectful. Can you try to recognize that as also somebody who's having a hard time regulating their anger? They don't know how to feel that. And so they're acting out and maybe having other routes in terms of expressing that anger would help them instead of just saying, you're so disrespectful and shutting down what they're doing, which is signaling to you, I am struggling in some way. And with suicide, I think that this could be prevented with simple, not easy, but simple conversations. And one thing I regret not putting in the book, Andy, is the life-saving question, as I call it. And I referenced it in the book, but I didn't really make it clear that when you talk about suicide, which it doesn't have to be one single conversation, it can be an ongoing conversation. The way to do that, if you're a therapist, a parent, a friend, a lover, anybody, is not to say, have you ever thought about harming yourself? You want to speak very directly. Have you ever thought about ending your life? And just that slight shift in language signals to the person you are talking to that you are prepared to have this conversation. Mm, yeah, yeah, you can handle it. You can handle it. You're inviting them to talk about it. And kids, you don't ask this question to teens expecting the first time you ask to be the point of engagement. That's not the purpose of asking the question. The purpose of asking the question is signaling to the person, I'm here if you need to talk about this. because. Something that happens is that there's so much shame around feelings of ending your life that people don't discuss it. They don't know how common it is. They don't know that there are a lot of choices to make. They just don't have any sense of agency. And it's that lack of agency and connection that leads people to make these tragic choices, which are avoidable. We're here today with Catherine Morgan Schaffler talking about perfectionism and how that plays out for parents and teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. It's really hard, actually, to become some version of yourself that's not defined by your family and not defined by your friend set. You know, that is the whole task of emerging adolescence, which goes into your mid-20s. 
So it's a big job. So I understand why you teenagers simultaneously want to blend in and stand out at the same time. This was so obvious after I decided it, but it never occurred to me, was I'm going to tell Abby, my daughter, what makes me most proud. Because I think a lot of kids, and particularly teens, think that their parents care only about them getting into a good college or getting good grades. And maybe you do care about that as a parent, but I'm sure that's not the only thing you care about. And so being able to just say, you know what makes me most proud of you is when you, you know, what I tell my daughter is, the thing that makes me most proud is when you treat yourselves and others well. And so when I see her treat, you know, there was this little boy at the playground and he was leaving his truck and she picked up the truck and ran after him and gave it to him, I said, that's exactly what makes me so proud of you. You really thought of that boy. When we delay our sense of feeling good in the name of responsibility, what we're doing is denying our full selves the ability to show up in the room. And you can't be your full self while you're punishing yourself. You can't be the kind of parent you would be if you were demonstrating compassion for yourself. You can't be the kind of employee or boss you want to be. You can't be the person for yourself that you want to be if you're punishing yourself. I say in the book, it's like trying to get a massage while jogging, like no version of it works. If you're a parent and your strategy is, I told my kid that they need to be home at 11 and they're not, and now I'm just going to punish them without having a conversation about anything that might have led to that decision. Like, did you want to leave and not feel comfortable saying that? What made it so that you couldn't get home on time? Did you, you know, because oftentimes kids want to do the right thing and they can't advocate for themselves. They don't have a script. They don't have language. And ugh. If we could only learn that stuff under the safety net of being at home, that would be so wonderful. But instead, parents say, this is so disrespectful. You're not doing what you should. Now you can't go out for two weeks. Okay, great. The kid doesn't learn anything. And they're just going to sneak out now because they're just avoiding the source of the punishment, which is you. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.